Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, there's no intro today. I just I'm, I have too much controversy fatigue to write one. And also, I feel as though people's senses of humor may be kind of eroded at this point. Uh, it could just be me. Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to do the nose today, obviously, and we are fortunate to have with us from Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley, from Theater Works, Tanisha Dugan, and from Tungsis Community College, Professor Elizabeth Kiefer. That's who's with us today. Um, in the second part of the show today, we'll talk about, well, we have to talk about the red cups of Starbucks, but hopefully we can shed some light on those red cups that has not been shed so far. A lot of people have taken a lot of sips out of those red cups, uh, metaphorically, already. Uh, but we're going to begin, where else can we begin? Uh, although I'd love to talk about something else. Um, <laughs> but where else can we begin but at Yale University, where uh, if you are, are emerging from a cave, you just got back from a trip to Hong Kong, um, I, I can try to explain this to you. Uh, it mostly started a few days before Halloween, uh, something called the uh, Intercultural Affairs Council, and the dean of Yale, who was attached to it, uh, sent an email to all undergraduates advising them uh, about Halloween costumes uh, and advising them not to wear Halloween costumes that, quote, threaten our sense of community. There was a list of the kinds of Halloween costumes that uh, to avoid. Uh, some of them would be sort of r- racial in nature. Some of them would be religious in nature, some of them. But then there was sort of, well, you can wear certain things if they're like historically um, uh, intended as opposed to playfully. I don't know. Uh, there were a lot of things. Um, and so there were some students who complained to various other authority figures at Yale about this, like, well, why are they telling us what kind of Halloween costumes to wear? Uh, at which point, uh, Erica Christakis, so she's a um, associate master of Silliman College, which essentially means she's married to the master of Silliman College. Uh, Silliman College is one of uh, Yale's residential colleges. The term master obviously uh, has its own loaded qualities. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I think it all goes back. They were trying to be more like Oxford and Cambridge and stuff. But anyway, uh, there are 12 undergraduate residential uh, colleges at Yale. That Silliman is one of them. So Erica Christakis, who's an, uh, a, a child developmental psychologist, weighed in with an email um, to, I think, just the students of Silliman College sort of saying, well, you know, who knows what's really objectionable? Who knows what's really appropriate? Uh, there's sort of a playful, uh, transgressive spirit. I'm summarizing here uh, to Halloween. Uh, maybe it would be better uh, to work these things out among yourselves. You see somebody wearing a costume you don't like, either don't look at it or go tell them. Tell them you don't like this costume. Have a conversation. Um, and then things went, got, got very crazy after this. Now, uh, plugged into the rest of this also, there's an, uh, a thing that goes along with us, that uh, this that was happening at almost ex- the same time, which is that there were allegations on social media that a party uh, at a, the fraternity SAE, which is off campus at Yale, it's not allowed on campus because of other bad things it's done, uh, that at some point um, students trying to go to this party were told that uh, they were only letting in white girls. Um, it's a little hard I mean, I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether this actually happened or not. It, it's pretty clear that something happened anyway. Uh, and uh, But it's probably it's certainly not true that it happened on campus and also not true that it was a whites-only party. It seems pretty clear there were already like a lot of p- pretty 
pretty mixed crowd at the party, and then there were drunk people behaving like jerks, which is what happens at fraternities, which is probably why you shouldn't have them. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so meanwhile, there have been... That's like, another show. That's another show. Uh, so anyway, there have been all kinds of open letters and demonstrations. and But I mean, probably most notably, um, a viral video in which a student, we're not going to play it right now, but in which a student confronts Nicholas Christakis, the um, master of Silliman and the husband of Erica, uh, and, and really kind of lets him have it. Um, and uh, does, in fact, shout some obscenities and yells, be quiet, when he tries to talk. And uh, there's a lot of cheering and jeering going on in the background. That kind of went viral, became yeah. sort, of a, sort of a symbol <laughs> uh, of, uh, of all the discontented yells. So I'm going to stop here and, and just sort of say, and since then, there's been a lot more talk about this. I wrote a column which has infuriated a whole bunch of people and put me in the surprising position for me of being on the other side of the river from somebody like Jelani Cobb, whom I worship, and on the same side of the river with Jonah Goldberg, who I don't worship. Um, (laughs) And uh, I've done a lot more reading and thinking about this. I think I may have more to contribute than what was in that column, but I'd much rather hear from everybody else here. There's you know, listening is good and all this kind of stuff. So, um, and I've heard a little bit from all of you about this as we've been emailing around about it. You can also tweet at us as we go along here at WNPR Colin. Um, but uh, let's see who show well, James. You can you can get us started here. Well, I you know having uh, gone through um, the '60s and demonstrations and sort of getting people aware of things. One of the, one of the things that I remember very well and to me still applies really is that there's a context to things and if people are really ready to be triggered, that there's people angry about things, then it can be expressed by seemingly inconsequential things like say Halloween costumes that suddenly – I mean I'm certainly not suggesting that you know you can have some sort of official policy on Halloween costumes with a list of – you know, what's possible and what's not or what's insulting and what's not. But you certainly have to be aware that people are going to have reactions to things. And my feeling about what's happening at Yale and and other campuses on uh, around the country as well is that you're seeing really an exposure of the issues of who has power and who doesn't. And the fact that really that people get disrespected in small, casual ways all the time I remember one thing way back at Trinity many years ago when a fraternity was running a a, 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 a party and they called it a Kamanawanalea party. And this was sort of pro- portrayed as being this innocent Hawaiian party. But it contained a, a demeaning thing about women, uh, about an attitude to women and why women were wanted at that party. And so that, that would is, be a good party word to vote about with your feet. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you have to have your wits about you and you know how to deal with these things. But they did get a big demonstration, a demonstration I attended outside, you know, that made the point clear that, that some people found that offensive. But what is the background to these things that makes people so angry and they're ready to go out and make a fuss and people yell in people's faces and stuff like that, which may not be particularly productive in itself? But that tension is coming from somewhere. And I think that tension is coming from things like, for instance, not having a discussion about uh, Yale's sort of dichotomy, as it were, which is very rich people who support the university, who want to talk very expansively about the Constitution and, and First Amendment and all the rest of it. But in fact, the actual situation of how people live and how they're respected is not paid attention to so much. And so people get angry over time and then something clicks and it, it happens. 
That's a, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a good uh, groundwork lay. All right, Tanisha, you go. I'm just, I'm, I just want to hear what people have to say, so we'll go around the horn. It's, 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 there's so much to talk about, and I suspect that uh, brown people are so ready to talk about it, yeah. and so we are – it's like a family, right? The ones who are really in the middle of the sauce want to want to express themselves, and the ones who are like, well, let's uh, – Let's move past this. Mm. Don't want to talk about it. Um, and there's a discourse it's because there's a coarseness in our discourse that makes having this conversation even more difficult. I made the joke of you lie as Colin was doing his introduction. <laughs> but I think that environment is where some of – we can get hung up on the, on the way in which the conversations are happening. But that is – sort of broadly the way that we engage with each other, whether it's a really intimate, important topic like uh, race in America and socioeconomics and how race plays into that in America um, and as something we'll talk about later, but, you know, things that are much more trivial like what we're going to drink our coffee out of. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's so hard for me because I think of sort of the course of my life. I am totally the person who grew up really comfortable, and I was the one black kid in my neighborhood, the one black kid in my school, Um, and I didn't have to deal with my blackness until I became an adult. And my, like, one resounding racist moment happened in a place of power. It happened at Smith Barney. I was headed to a rehearsal that we were having to do at Smith Barney, and this gentleman who works there sent me to an elevator and said, this is the elevator that goes to that floor. Right? And I had no idea, so I went onto that elevator, and I get off, and the director says, why did you take the freight elevator? Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I go, uh-huh. I had no idea. <clears throat> and so, you know, we talk about microaggressions in colleges, and I think there's a lot of sort of feelings that the microaggressions um, that we feel are um, – that we're hypersensitive to what they are as opposed to, like, these are just true, real things for us right now. Um, and always are. My story is no different than my mother's story, no different than my grandmother's story. Um, And after 400 years and a lot of generations of having the same conversation, it's hard to have the conversation quietly. Yeah, I agree. All right, Elizabeth. Well, as an English professor and a person who has also taught a lot of communication courses, I'm always teaching my students that it's very important how you say it. However, uh, I think one of the things we're just starting to touch upon is how people react to anger. In my own personal life, I have found that certain things have not moved forward until I got angry. Uh, I could ask nicely. We, in a perfect world, we love civil discourse and everything's politely asked for and then it'll be received. But that's not the way it works in the world. Sometimes you have to get angry. And that's what I feel is happening with some of these messages is we're looking at the anger instead of really going back and, like James said and you said, looking at what is the substance of the message and what's the the backstory of the message. And it's interesting that what makes you angry uh, – I mean I, one of the triggers for me about anger is a sense of being disrespected, that, that, that anger rises. That You know, if you feel secure and respected – you feel you can make your point. You can say something. You can say, well, look, this particular situation contains this image or this is upsetting or we should manage this differently. You can have this conversation. But if you're feeling insecure and disrespected, I mean, it can happen in an instant. 
you could be at an airline counter, you know, sort of trying to get the last seat on the plane kind of thing. And, and, and if you're treated with respect and they're telling you, no, you can't get on, that's one thing. But if they're going to actually sort of demean you and treat you like a child, for example, or be racist, uh, pick out the one black person to act that way to or to somehow express something that shows power and therefore disrespect, then – your anger comes up, and so your reactions then are different. And, and anger is sort of the emotion that black people can't traffic in. Exactly. And so exactly. I think what's been interesting in watching all of the the uh, reporting that's been going out, both about Yale and Missouri, is that a lot of the focus from my white journalists have really been from that perspective yeah. of, like, they yeah. are angry and I can't listen to the message because they're angry. And like you said, there becomes a point where you say – Forget it. Like, we've been trying not to be angry for fear that you would say this is just an angry black person doing the thing that they do, but perhaps and you only listen. And it's double trouble you're if you're angry. a woman exactly. who's yes. angry yeah. because our angry, our anger is shrill and strident and hysterical. Right. Well, my it anger is in shrill. Oh, <laughs> my <laughs> anger. No, honestly, I mean, if Michelle Obama gets angry, she's not necessarily shrill. She's. No, I'm saying that I'm saying that's a stereotype <laughs> it of is. women's anger that we have now lost our minds. Now we're hysterical and we're incoherent. But I have actually, to colorize we may be it. Very, we may be very coherent. I think you're right, but I have to colorize it because I think <clears throat> I am not when my black female self is angry. It's really not perceived as shrill. <laughs> it's just not. You're not gonna even if it is shrill. Your perception of it is very different. It's very different. I, I have a sort of so a couple of uh, overarching thoughts about this, and I'd love to get some reactions. I think one thing that happens in these situations is people plug the individual incident into this other much larger nimbus of discontent. And I think both sides do that. So, I mean, when, in fact, these protesters were surrounding Nicholas Christakis, the master of Silliman College, and this one particular young woman is, is yelling some you know pretty terrible things at him and stuff like that, I mean, it's pretty clear that this and, and, and subsequently some of them have demanded his and his wife's removal from their, those particular positions and stuff. That's clearly a conversation that's about the Halloween costume thing. You know, It's not about a bunch of other stuff because they're not involved and all the other stuff. They're really only involved in the Halloween costume thing. But then that gets plugged into this other huge nimbus of discontent, some of which is very hard for outsiders to understand because it hasn't been explained very well. You know, I mean, I've been reading and reading and reading. I'm starting to get it a little bit more, starting to understand it a little bit more. But it's something that needs a lot of explaining. And in some ways, it can look like, I'm not saying this is what it is, it can look like, oh, well, we... You know, we kind of went nuts in this one situation, and now we're kind of backing up uh, and, and kind of filling it in with this other context. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's either part, either it was part of that other context all the time, and I'm prepared to believe that, or it becomes a justification. Here's why we went so nuts, because of all this other stuff that you don't know about. I think that the, the costume is the conduit. Mm -hmm. um, it is offensive for me when I see and – I'm, and I'm offended by – all of the costumes, whether it's blackface, whether it's Indian face, whether it's yellow face, like all of it offends me because I think that what you are trying to do when you do that isn't coming from a place of I want to explore or I'm, I'm curious about that and so I want to play with that on Halloween. I think it comes from um, – Caricature. Yeah. It comes but from a, a not – 
And, and if somebody comes up to you when you've had that reaction, somebody who perceived who's perceived as having authority, like the master of a college at Yale among students, who then says, "Oh, calm down, calm down, don't get so excited. It's just a costume. It's not just a costume. Exactly. It exactly. isn't. It exactly. is actually engendered anger in you." Because it's a symbol of the power exchange that's taking place. Right. And so that's – if anything, if there's any reason why the master and his wife of, 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 of the college should not have their jobs, it's because they're poor exercises of authority. They should have kept their mouth shut at that point because they were by, – by saying what they did, I think that they said, well, your feelings, your reactions to it were not – Valid that, that they're not valued by us as much, and so it engendered this extreme anger where you get people screaming in their faces. Well, let me bring up the other the other nimbus that this gets plugged into, and I, I want to hear your reaction, reactions to that too. And I think I, I plugged it into this other nimbus uh, in writing my column. Okay, so there's this whole other set of feelings, and they're generational in nature as opposed to racial. I think anyway, and it's the sense that first of all, this generation of college students is much more interested in their own problems than in anybody else's, um, and that they've constructed this entire rubric of trigger warnings and things that they, you can't say around them, things that they, that they don't want to hear. You have people like Chris Rock saying he won't play college campuses anymore because they simply don't have the capacity uh, to, to listen to anything that might be disturbing to them. Um, and, and I think also being plugged into this is a little bit is the sense that that there's some kind of breakdown, not of only of civility, but maybe of discipline. These students, if I understand them, are really kind of asking the university to ref a lot of this stuff, right? We really want you yeah. to get involved and ref it. You know, we want you to make people stop doing right. certain things. Which is a big mistake in my view. That, mm -hmm. that, that to, to take that on, I mean, this is the thing that you take responsibility for your own anger. And I think if you're saying that the, uh, the university is behaving badly in a certain way, then you use use that as your platform and you, you argue with it, but then you don't turn around and seek authority to somehow enforce what you're saying because you're doing the same thing that the people have done in the first place. It's funny because part of me thinks what you said was that the master should have stayed out of it, and I actually agree with that. But I do think that the purpose of a university is to test out, try out theories and social norms. And so I think that there has to be that the university does act as a ref and that they should stay out of it so that there are two parts of it, right? No, perhaps, you know, the uh, cultural, excuse me for calling the committee incorrectly, maybe it was a bit of a, of a pushing or an overstepping of coming out with the email because it was obviously a conversation that the students were having. It didn't come from the students and perhaps that's why it was it, right. it it um, affected itself in that way, excuse me. Um, but I think the students are having this conversation. How do you bubble it up and and bring it to the university level so that there can be, you know, a pushing of the culture in general? Well, there's creating safe boundaries around those kind of discussions, but also allowing there to be some anger. I, I'm going back to my thing about anger that we once people get angry, women, men, anybody, we start to see that as a dangerous place and as if the message is gone. The message is still there, even in angry or emotional words. Yeah. You know, I want to just also just sort of finish up uh, this whole idea of asking the university to ref. All right. So, yeah, you don't want the, you want the university. You're asking the university, be the referee, be in some kind of authority figure and, and, and differentiate good behavior from bad behavior. And I see to me at this point, and this could be me old fart saying, you know, mm -hmm. back in my day, because as I was watching that video, I thought, 
thought, well, back in my day, if you had screamed those obscenities at a, a college master, you, at minimum, you'd have to sit down with somebody and have a conversation yeah. about it. There, there might be even some disciplinary consequences for you. And, you know, a little bit later, as things got heated up a couple of days later, you had protesters who actually spat on people emerging from a meeting where things were being said that they didn't like. Again, you know, if you're going to ask the university to ref – then I think the university has to ref everything. And, and that would include calling that young woman in and saying, you know, we want you to be able to express your feelings here, but not that way. You really have crossed a line. If you're I screaming mean, obscenities yeah. at somebody who's not screaming them back at you. At Tonks, is some, that student would be sitting down with the dean of students and having a conversation, mm-hmm. not being punished, but would have a conversation with the dean of students if F-bombs were dropped. But I, I think that when you have uh, – I, I think it, the better metaphor to think of, a, of, of an academic community is that it is a community. It's a cooperative community ultimately. It's a place where young people are transitioning from a place where – in a high school where they're expecting that there is authority there and if they misbehave, they, 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 there are sanctions. However, they're coming to a place where they're learning to live essentially and it's a very delicate dance I think for the, for the, the academic uh, directors of the university, the professors, the mm-hmm. masters of a college and all of those people. They're really giving guidance but they're giving guidance in a way that allows room for people to settle their own disputes or people to actually re- behave in a responsible manner. Or express themselves. Or express themselves. And, and it's a very important lesson to learn that you can express very loudly your opinions <laughs> without spitting on somebody or without, you know, sort of coming in and smashing equipment or something like that, that you can actually have that conversation. But it's very important within that community is to understand the source of anger and discontent. And for instance, I mean, one of my basic things is that, you know, you can have all of these highfalutin conversations about where people stand in the community, but you actually have to look at, for instance, unequal pay. Why are people paid unequally? Why are women not paid at the same rate in this day and age now when we know all that we know? Why is it that that still continues? That is an expression of power. And to me, that's the fire that burns beneath this. And setting up those frames to me is what the university is for, Yes, is to suggest these topics as ways to distill the emotion. Yes. Because otherwise it is just like those I mean there's there's a difference between those of us who are educated and those of us who are not and sometimes it is having those frameworks to start to work through the many thoughts and feelings that we have that's important it's why to me it's not just about learning a stem trade it's about yeah. learning how to be I'm a full totally, human that is why we go to but it's also taking practical steps you can have a million conversations and nothing ever changes what practical steps can we take to move this forward? I, I, yesterday they hired a, a new black president, at Michael Missouri. Middleton, at the University of Missouri yeah. for the four-campus system. So they're taking a step, whether that's going to be entirely effective or not, but they're trying to take some practical and steps. And I love that he was like, I'm black. There's mm-hmm. a reason why they put me here. We all know that. There's a reason why, <laughs> you know, like I love that he was able to walk into that position and one, begin the conversation about affirmative action in a subtle way because let's be honest, that's a lot of what's playing out at Yale, unfortunately. There is a – and I have a lot of friends there who are past students who are very honest about the fact that they feel like even within the university there's there are two systems. Yes, the university itself is its own place in a 
city that is mostly black and that's one thing. But actually being there as a brown student, you feel like, oh, does the, 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 is there the legitimate mm-hmm. of us and the yeah. illegitimate, for lack of a better term? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, certainly people feel what they feel, and you can't tell them, well, you really don't feel that way. Uh, but I think it's important to, uh, for example, I wound up immediately understanding the grievances and the problems of the Missouri students with a clarity that it has taken me days and days and days to get to, if I've even gotten to it, with the Yale students, right? The Missouri students were pretty clear about, what's, here's what's going on here. Here's why we're upset. Uh, and for me, it's taken a lot longer, and I feel as though – the Yale students are saying, well, some of it's just very, very granular, very finely grained, you know, something that we very experienced, yes, at that very micro level. Um, and, and I don't know. I, I, I feel uh, – first of all, I, I'm sympathetic. Um, I went to Yale uh, for three of the four years. My roommate was a young African-American man. Um, I, you know, I feel for that. But I also wonder how, how great a place and how pristine and how purified you can make any place and still have it be – uh, a place where conversations happen in, in some of the ways we want them to happen, you know. And and obviously there is a big difference between a speaker being invited in that I don't like and somebody from my community, to use James's term, dressing up in a way that I don't like because that person is going to be there the next morning and the morning after and the morning after and the morning after. Still, I, I do feel like, you know, any community is full of all kinds of minorities. I mean, Yale, for example, has an LDS population. Um, uh, if, if a student group wanted to stage Book of Mormon, um, should they have – I mean the Book of Mormon is very assaultive and offensive to LDS people. I, I still think it should be done. You know, it, will, it will disrupt their feeling of being in a safe space. There's just so no question about that. If their fellow students are putting on this musical, they will feel less safe. But I still think, think that needs to go on. I think we're missing the point because sort of – uh, attaching LDS to the black experience is just seems to me like we're being flip about the black experience. And not to say that the LDS community at Yale, I have no idea, is not a marginalized community. Perhaps they are. But I think to equivocate them is a mistake. I, I, I would agree with that because I think that the LDS community, you can say, comes from a background of a lot of money and power. And, and uh, it certainly Super is white. very secure <laughs> uh, in its in its own image. Yes, until recently, you know, black people didn't exist, couldn't go to heaven, and all the rest of it right, yeah, for, exactly. for the longest time. And then suddenly <laughs> there was a revelation. Oh yes, now they can go to heaven. <laughs> I mean, it, there's, there's, I think you have to look at context here. I mean, Yale is in in many ways obviously going to be affected by what happened in Missouri. In Missouri, I think that you didn't have many of the sort of collegial uh, exchange of ideas that perhaps you have in, in at Yale in Missouri you 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 had people complaining about things like being yelled at with racial slurs right. you you it's coming out about all these threats online and threats to kill people i mean there, there was a very visceral reaction to a lot of things And it's also geographic. I mean, the Northeast doesn't handle the racism in that way. No, and it's so very, there's absolutely exactly. a conversation happening. I, I'm, it's all coming out of Black Lives Matter to me that there, the, the movement is in Missouri and at Yale and in New York City and in San Francisco and in Texas. Um, 
but we're dealing with the sort of how it manifests itself in our particular locations in different yeah. ways. Can yeah. I just go back to the Mormons for a second and say, I, I, I'm not entirely, I want to push back against that a little bit. I mean, we can start with the fact that Joseph Smith himself was lynched. Um, so that's sort of how the movement begins. And this is, you know, they've they're pretty, been pretty marginalized over the course of their history in a lot of ways. They may be white. They may have a lot of money. I'm not sure you forfeit all of your rights to tolerance because you're white and have a lot of money. No, I don't, but I'm uh, offended uh, by well, the fact just, that... Let, let me just finish. I don't, I, don't think you could do, I don't think you could do that musical about anybody else. I don't think you could do the Book of Jews or the Book of Negroes or the Book of anything. You know, I mean, they're kind of a target. You, I don't think you could do a hit Broadway musical well, look making at, fun... Look, and, look at the uh, history, yeah. though, where that came from. Mm-hmm. In California, they funded a, a campaign with a lot of their money to actually take rights away from, from LGBT people. And they succeeded. Mm-hmm. And there was considerable consternation about that in the LGBT community. And certainly that made it something very different to actually have a musical that actually uh, in some ways ridicules uh, LDS people. But, it, 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 you know, there's always context like that. There's always about real power. Real power in California represented the Roman Catholic Church and the LDS getting together and putting a huge amount of money into a, a – into a legal campaign to take away rights from a certain group of people. So you do that, then you're going to get some blowback. You're going to get some reaction to it. I guess what I'm really arguing for, though, is, you know, you wind up, if you're trying to create safe spaces for everybody, and okay, maybe LDSs, maybe they forfeited their right to a safe space. Uh, we'll put that one aside for a second. It, you know, I mean, for example, Except Yale. No, if anyone is saying specifically saying that. that. <laughs> um, I don't think but, saying that. But, you know, I mean, for example, uh, um, in his lifetime, Amiri Baraka was invited to speak at Yale by groups at Yale that wanted to have him there. Now, some of his pronouncements about Jews are pretty hyperbolic, pretty anti-Semitic. It's gone so far as to suggest that on 9-11, Jews were told to stay home from the World Trade Center. If you're a Jew at Yale and Amiri Baraka, by your peers, has been invited to come in and speak, you may feel unsafe. Um, I'll probably get her name wrong, but Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, is um, a feminist who is absolutely contemptuous uh, of Islam, regards it as evil incarnate, has been, in fact, disinvited, I think, from at least one commencement address. If you're a devout Muslim at Yale and she gets invited, you might feel less safe. You might feel as though you're, you know, the, the space isn't really, you're not being treated the same way somebody else is being treated. I would, I would agree. And in that context, I mean, the question would be the status of Muslims in, in American universities, the fact of, uh, of prejudice against Muslims and, and, and them being sort of identifiable, women especially being identifiable, that, that, that this goes back to me to the sense of security. If you're a secure person with a sense that you have a secure place in society and that you have respect, then you can actually have the argument. You can go and demonstrate against Amiri Baraka and you can say you're an anti-Semite and you can even try and shout him down. You can have the, you can go there and, and have this sort of public fight. But I think that it's different if you don't have power. I think that you can – it's like how, how, how are women marginalized? You, know, you talked about women being shrill you know, when they get angry. Well, shrill is an epithet thrown at women to make them seem like they're insubstantial, that they can't be trusted, that they're victims of their hormones, all kinds of scurrilous, nasty stuff that is an indication saying you don't have the power, so shut up. Well, I think that what Colin's asking is how far will this go, the, the idea of safety? 
And and I, I think that's a kind of a rhetorical question. But how far could it go? I have friends who say to me, the PC police are on everything. You can't say anything anymore. You can't do anything. You can't uh, talk about anyone without the PC police. Like, I don't know who those people are, but coming down on you. So I think that he's just sort of asking how far could this go for everybody, each individual's safety that we... Well, yeah, I guess maybe I'm, we have to go to a break here, but um, I, I guess I'm sort of re- I didn't. I wasn't particularly crazy about Erica Christakis's email or the way she framed this, but underlying it, I think, is that kind of question of it, I, I analogize it to what we did with um, antibiotic uh, hand washes mm-hmm. and, and antibiotics themselves, right? You create an environment where the germs actually get stronger uh, because you've purified it so much. You create an environment where the things that you relied on to counter the forces of evil or, in this case, disease, don't work as well because you just created too pristine an environment that you need a little bit of dirt. I mean, this is what I think Christakis is trying to say, not very well. Maybe you need a little bit of dirt. Maybe you need some germs around. Maybe you need kind of a messy and environment in order to to really have a robust conversation about anything. Um, I can carry this over into the next segment if we want to keep talking. So maybe we'll think about doing that. Okay, we do have to take a break. My producers will kill me. We'll be back. We're trying to figure out whether we've come to a to a stopping point. I think the Starbucks would be interesting. All right. I think it brings up a lot of the same. Well, yeah, I, I think there may be. Okay, so here here's the other story that's probably been talked to death already, but um, uh, we'll talk about it some more anyway. Um, if nothing for the, nothing more than if for no other reason than the amazing video that uh, Elizabeth sent to us. Uh, by the way, our guests are James Hanley, Tanisha Dugan, uh, Elizabeth Kiefer uh, here on the news. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin as we go along here. I, Got some tweets. Maybe I can read them later. Um, so as probably everybody knows, Starbucks changed their holiday cups. Their holiday cups are merely red. They don't have anything else adorning them. This has been uh, a, a fertile opportunity for comedians like Ellen DeGeneres and Stephen Colbert uh, to have a lot of fun with this. Uh, there have been people complaining, as people will complain, that this is part of the war on Christmas and that they are – um, sucking all the um, uh, tradition, shall we say, uh, out of holiday observances. Um, I don't know people who are reliant on Starbucks for their holiday observances uh, may, <laughs> may, may deserve what they get. But anyway, so it's not Christmas yeah. if it's not on the cup. Right. So how do you connect this? Well, the way that I connected it was I I tend to be a little bit sympathetic with the Christian groups who say that uh, they're they're taking the Christ out of Christmas, not because I'm particularly a Christian. I, I consider myself sort of omni-religious. I believe and respect all religions, and I think they're all valid, except for the ones with swinging dead cats over your head. No, that's bad. Uh, but um, I saw them the same as I, I feel like this group over time is is accumulating these small slights. And so it seems like a tempest in a teapot to complain about a red cup but this is their breaking point. This is their where it's making them angry that that you removed all the Christmas uh, decorations. Although Ellen said something funny, she said they took off the snowflakes and the sleds and the Santa. She said, you know, everything straight from the Bible. Right. <laughs> it seems to me they've had many breaking points, but uh, yeah, shouldn't they, shouldn't they have yeah. started yeah, a, the outrage? Like, right. <laughs> that's the connecting point. Is that it's all outrage accumulated? And out, how do you accumulated outrage? <laughs> how do you suss out the important outrage from the less important outrage? But the, 
it doesn't this indicate that like hundreds of years ago they should have like nipped the commercial exploitation of the Christmas season exactly. in the bud and said this is religious, this is about Jesus, this is about Christmas and Christ, and and uh, so they 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 create this uh, strong force that says that no, don't exploit my religion commercially. But no, it's become essentially a massive opportunity. And actually, when you think of the origins of the Red Cup, I, I mean, I was pointing out earlier that the, the, the Red Cup was, you know, they, they were manufacturing those Red Cups in February and March. <laughs> so, you know, this is like... <laughs> and I absolutely identify it with Bono and that entire campaign <laughs> for Africa. So <laughs> there's like... The, you know. well, but James, you know, we would, you'd be depriving us if you didn't, I mean, give us the Hanley take on this. Well, I mean... It, to me, it is obvious in cases like this. I mean, if you're if you're if you're Dunkin' Donuts, you're, uh, the management, you're really pissed off now that that everybody's talking about Starbucks, mm-hmm. and the issue in commercial exploitation always is your name on people's lips, even if it's something controversial. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that Starbucks is this is the second time they've done something perceived as. Uh, controversial recently. The other one was they talking about race writing on the cups and stuff like that. There's which, the connection. We get <laughs> the, the, yeah, we now have a connection here. And so, uh, forgive me for being so suspicious of this, but uh, yeah, I think it has some connections commercially. I, bet I like inclusiveness, and maybe I'm being a little Pollyanna-ish here, but I said put whatever you want on the cups. Put any major holiday from any religion, put their symbols on the cup. If, it, if we're really going to be inclusive... I think Starbucks was trying to be inclusive by erasing everything off the cups, uh, although I don't think some people got it that way. You can put whatever you want on the cup. You can draw a menorah on there. You can draw a Christmas right, that tree. Right. Was, that was their point, right, that decorate the cup the you way decorate you want the cu- yeah. Right. But I think it ended up being we're, we're taking all the symbols away, and that's the, what people reacted to. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'd be happier if there were uh, all kinds of symbols on the cups. I mean, I, I, I would mean, feel like that would be inclusive. the cup every – all. All year long. So, I mean, in so essence, you, you, you could have just kept the, the cup uh, white and <laughs> it would have served the same purpose. I mean, they are saying something by making it a different color. They are, you know, recognizing a season that is right. specific to a certain religion. And that is, that is uh, for better or for worse, the religion that is celebrated in America. Maybe we don't all celebrate it, but it is our religion, whether we want to stand behind that or not. Well, for, for some people. First of all, Absolutely, I, but our country, we do, yeah. we do, I mean, from August to January 1st, the entire country is enmeshed in, as you said, commercially, right. this holiday. It is, it is, all right, we I'll, are, we're a capitalist country, so. <laughs> I'll follow through. Uh, there's a board committee at Starbucks, the cup committee, and they're busy working on the next one and exactly. the one after that. <laughs> I mean, next I, it'll be I, blue. I, I do <laughs> agree with James about this, that they, this is totally a victory for them. Uh, it will be taught in marketing classes along with lots of other uh, ruses that James has also seen through in the past, <laughs> and and it, it's it's worked marvelously for them. I think it is sort of worth saying that a it's hard to see that Christ and Christians are losing a lot of ground here. <laughs> you know? Watch oh, a Republican sorry. debate. Thank you know, you. it just it's hard to say. Wow, they're losing the battle in any particular way. And it's also important to remember so much of what we think of traditional Christmas stuff is sort of constructed pretty recently in this country. In other words, all the all the many, so many of the things, starting with Santa Claus, of course, but uh, the iconography, it's all a lot more recent than anybody realizes. Right, right. It's not hundreds and but, hundreds of years But Colin, years you could say the same thing about women. Women shouldn't be complaining because look at all the strides they've made. Look, we have a woman who's going to run for president. But there's still a lot more to be done. 
Well, yeah. yes. Although I do you think so. It's, I, it's, I don't. I, I, I don't want to say. I don't want to judge for another group that they feel that they. You know, I can't say that another group shouldn't feel maligned. But they, not they my, like my won place. a whole country. They came here for the purpose <laughs> of like <laughs> founding a country, and yeah, they are like. And their ego is so fragile that it's right. challenged by a red cup. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's sort I of a question so. of whether they are still making strides. I mean, they, they. Yes, uh, the question is whether they're. You could say that of women too. You know, I you've gotten I think yourself into all kinds of businesses and universities. You've gotten yourself into the military. I, mean, I, I do think know. that's a flawed analogy. Yeah. This, this is a this is a group that enjoys hegemony right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to women who are still seeking equality. Christians aren't seeking equality. They they have hegemony, and, and the question is, are they in any significant way losing ground, or is that kind of a manufactured uh, I- issue for them to kind of juice up their their base? And well, they're also that's the bit. connection. Right, that we're talking about power, and here's right. here exactly. is the yeah. major power, major religious organization in our country, and they feel like they're losing ground. They're losing their ability. They're not, you know, they, they're not the polit. I mean, Barack Obama is not a Muslim, but uh, I don't see them as a unified group, though. I see them as a lot of different different groups going on there. Well, so I don't there's see that them. too. There's yeah. that too. Well, I mean, uh, I will. Here's the here's how I can connect it all together, which is you know to do do truly the right thing. Uh, Starbucks should have coffee cups that reflect uh, Christmas uh, and Kwanzaa and Hanukkah and definitely Festivus. And Festivus, of course, includes the airing of grievances. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. So, they should just do a Festivus cup. <laughs> a Festivus cup that you could really get mad at and perform a feats of strength with. And there's um, nothing more American than that. Right. Uh, we do have uh, all kinds of tweets and calls coming in, most of which I probably don't have time for. Although, going back to the Yale discussion, Lou tweets, there was a time I respected what Yale students protested for, against, such as apartheid. Uh, and that is another part of the conversation. You know, y- if you're going to have social activism. Some of it can be about you, but you got to connect it to other things. And actually, in South Africa right now, there are terrible things going on at the campuses. Uh, students getting hosed with water cannons at a time when South Africa is going through a drought. Think about that. I mean, South Africa is going through a really bad drought, and they're disciplining students on college campuses there using water cannons, which seems to be kind of compounding to injuries. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll have time for endorsements. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Gary Trudeau. For show pages, articles, and the Here and Now staff's guide to Halloween costumes, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, a widely discredited method for communicating with autism patients works its way into the public schools. And now... Back to Colin. All right. Time for endorsements. Oh, we've got a good chunk of time for that. Um, this is when our panel, this is an idea I stole from the Slate Culture Gab Fest every three months or so. I have to point that out. Um, and uh, so, James Hanley, you can go first. What are you going to endorse? Um, well, I wanted to remind everybody that the uh, uh, my perennial reminders about the winter markets, um, the uh, Coventry market and the stores market are both be going to be having winter markets. And it's a great place to go instead of the grocery store to uh, find fresh vegetables, and they are amazing producing spinach and stuff way into the winter, and uh, they'll be both running throughout the winter. And the other thing is um, <clears throat> Lily Tomlin in Grandma, which is showing at Cine Studio tonight and tomorrow. Um, it's a great performance, a really uh, amazing film, a short, very sharp film um, that 
that is really uh, it, it's sold as a comedy. It's one of those things where you see the trailer and they think that they're, they're going to sell it as a comedy. It's a little more serious than that, but really fine to see her. A wonderful performance. Um, very quickly, uh, Coventry's uh, uh, Winter Farmer's Market is at the high school there uh, still, I assume. Sunday, yes. Sunday's 11 to 2, I it's think. starting November 15th. Starting November 15th, which yep. is this Sunday. Yes. Um, and then uh, some of the farmers that you know from um, your, your uh, previous outdoor Sundays at Coventry are going instead. Instead, this year to Stonington, where I think that market is on Saturday mornings That's inside right. kind of a factory uh, complex down there. Yes. Um, down in uh, New Haven, uh, City Seed still has winter farmers markets. There's one on Saturday mornings. It's inside kind of, I don't know, you'll have to look it up. City Seed in New Haven. Uh, and w- what the stores one is? The stores one moves to the library um, and will be, right. uh, n- it's not every week, but it's uh, on, Saturday, uh, on Saturday, Saturday afternoons uh, in the stores library during the winter. Mm. You can go on, uh, you can just do a search for the stores farmer's market and you'll see all of the listings for the days that it's, that it's running. All right. Uh, Tanisha, what have you got for us? I've got Open Studios this weekend, and I am looking forward to an installation art performance tomorrow evening from 5 to 9. It's called Punching Bag, an Observation of Force. It's going to be at 1429 Park and Bartholomew Street. Amazing, amazing sort of interconnected, interactive, cross-artistic collaboration. Really excited for that. Um, Jimmy and Lorraine is still going. It sort of touches on that sort of Yale conversation because I was lucky enough to workshop it at Yale. And oddly enough, there weren't a lot of students of non-black color <laughs> coming to that performance, which is the, which is curious, of and course. And say where Jimmy and Lorraine... Jimmy, Jimmy and Lorraine's heartbeat. It's at 360 Farmington Avenue at the Carriage House Theater. Check it out before it continues itself into much more expensive theaters. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing work. And just to really amplify Open Studios in Hartford, it sprawls all over the city now. There's lots of different locations. Uh, I usually start out at Art Space uh, near the train station in Hartford, and you can there's shuttle buses that will take you other places. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to get some of your Christmas shopping done, too. I mean, buy from the creators themselves. Uh, and there's just terrific stuff, not just... You know, uh, figurative art and stuff. There's all kinds of stuff. Good one. I got one more. Theater works out uh, November 9th. It's a uh, Christmas on the Rocks. Is the next show coming up? And Theater works out is our LGBT night. We're excited for it because uh, it's going to be a little holiday jam. So come out for that too. All right, Elizabeth. Well, I thought I would do some Madison endorsements since I now live in Madison <laughs> on the shore. Uh, there's a wonderful little theater uh, in a, in someone's barn in their backyard. It's sort of donation only. It's called the Madison Lyric Stage. I've gone to two things. I went to see the Glass Menagerie there and also uh, some opera. And amazing performances, very inexpensive. It's donation only, wonderful. Um, the Madison Theater, the cinema that's there. I, um, James knows the, the guy who runs that place Great selection of movies, including yeah. Grandma Played, and I saw it there. A and real, he's a real movie, <laughs> oh, died in the world movie fanatic. And the movies Arnold are Garlic. amazing. Come down to Madison, and then also go across the street to R.J. Julia, and the book guy that they're featuring. One of the books they're featuring right now is All the Lights You Cannot We Cannot See. I think it's called All the Lights All the We Cannot light. See. All the Light We Cannot See, which I adored that book, and that's at R.J. Julia. All right, <laughs> uh, good endorsements here. Um, 
Uh, I want to endorse, apropos of the conversation that we've had here, um, a movie called The Best of Enemies. It's a documentary uh, about the, the duels uh, that were fought uh, during the 1968 conventions uh, between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And there's sort of a way in which the, 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 one of the ways that it links is, I mean, famously, and I'm going to have to um, have say some bad words here, so prepare yourselves or stop <laughs> your ears or something. Famously, you know, I mean, it, there is a way in which the first person to become, become uncivil loses. Uh, and Vidal managed to kind of, you know, manipulate, bait, box, faint uh, in his usual superb blizzard uh, of, uh, of wit and provocation. Buckley to a point where Buckley kind of snapped and he said uh, something to the effect of, look, he said on live television too, look, you goddamn queer, if you call me a crypto Nazi again, I'm going to plaster you and you'll stay plastered. I think I have it pretty much uh, about right. And in some way, Buckley, although obviously he persisted in many ways and his reputation was what it was, there's a way in which he never really recovered from that moment. Well, uh, there ties back to what we were talking about with exactly. anger. Yeah. And so and the documentary has the flaw, I think, of really kind of being a little bit agnostic about was was this the last true verbal articulate public debate in America or was this the debate that precipitated the noise machine that we have now, uh, you know, and it's it's one or the other, or maybe it's both. But in a way, but it has just terrific kind of side interviews. I mean, the people that they picked to talk to about this were fabulous. And now I have to look here and see if I can find it quickly on my thing here. Um, Elizabeth sent us this amazing uh, e- uh, this amazing video. Uh, now I'm not going to be able to find the citation for it uh, about the red Starbucks cup. I think if you just uh, maybe even Google the red cup, it's a priest. Uh, he's associated with a school in New York. Uh, it's on Vimeo. Saint That's where it's John scored. John the Baptist High School. Saint John the Baptist <laughs> High School in West okay. Islip, yeah. New York. She's I know it. it well. You know it well. So, and I just thought it was terrific. It's just this guy who's like. He's got to be like the coolest Catholic priest alive Absolutely. right now. He's just Very cute. Yeah, he's sitting at Starbucks <laughs> and he's just talking about this. And I mean, his overarching point is that we, we, we're back to the airing of grievances, but we're really good at getting mad at things. You know, we're really good at finding things that we can become furious about and maybe not as good at noticing the things that we like, the things that – and then ultimately, you know, those are the things that, that make life worth living. Uh, probably not our grievances and our anger, the things that really sort of animate us or the things that we love. And and I think he says at a certain point, you know, when it's all over and you're talking to God, God isn't going to say, you know, did you mm-hmm. come down on the right side of the Starbucks cups? And he's going to say, did you love me? Did you did you love the world? Did you love your life? So anyway, uh, he's saying it much better than I'll say it. So see if, you can, see if you can find that video. It's just terrific. And Dang. One, one. Hartford Prince. New commercial, new website. Check them out. Oh, also, uh, Amanda Gallagher wants you to know, West Harvard Community Theater, producing Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. That's uh, this weekend at Hall High School. I would have said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.